Antarctica is the highest, driest, coldest, windiest, and emptiest continent on Earth. Every year, more than 400 scientists venture there to study everything from astronomy to microbiology. But they can't do it alone. It takes a small army of support staff to keep them all safe and fully operational. The Antarctic Sun podcast is a behind-the-scenes look at what it takes for the National Science Foundation to maintain the research stations and vessels that support ongoing science in the harshest continent at the bottom of the planet. This episode, Research Associates. Sometimes even scientists need a hand. At each of the three U.S. Antarctic stations, research associates are there to support the principal investigators, or PIs, even when they're not there. I asked Marissa Gerke, the research associate for Palmer Station, about what it really means to be a research associate. Uh, a very, very like layman's way of saying it is I'm just the hands and eyes on station for the PIs that can't be here. So they're off, you know, actually doing the science, but they can't be here to take the samples. Generally speaking, mostly what RAs help out on are projects that have instruments installed on or near the station and are periodically collecting data. The, all these projects are run by different PIs, that's principal investigators, from a, a variety of, of different universities. This is Graham Tilbury, the research associate at McMurdo Station. Um, and they come down once a year, either they, they themselves or sometimes just technicians that work for them or work with them, sometimes PhD graduates that are involved with the, the, with the projects, come down and they um, do any modifications, they update the equipment, um, they service anything that needs to be serviced. Uh, so they'd be on station maybe for um, a week max, and then at the end of that period they go back uh, to their home universities. Uh, so the RAs look after the equipment, uh, daily checks, uh, notice any anomalies, and then interface with the PRs should there be any problems, or if uh, there are any requests from the PRs, for example, for changing data rates or anything like that. The RA is the guy on the ground here that is the hands-on. It actually does, does the work physically. Both McMurdo Station and Palmer Station have one RA on station at most times. At South Pole, the standard is two. Rob Streeter is what's called the CUSP tech at South Pole Station. So CUSP um, actually comes from the CUSP region of Earth's magnetic field. And it kind of alludes to the fact that most of my projects, not all, most of the ones that I take care of deal with space weather, deal with uh, phenomenon in uh, Earth's upper atmosphere, in the magnetic field, uh, that are unique to that CUSP region. And my counterpart, the Aurora Tech, deals with primarily, um, and it's not necessarily, you know, we picked up additional duties along the way, if you will. Uh, he deals with things that image the auroras directly. So he deals with a lot of the all-sky cameras. Um, he'll be the one that gets to walk around the station uh, once it gets dark and make sure everyone's got their windows blocked <laughs> so there's no light pollution outside. Um, it's kind of a cool split of, of duties. You might be starting to get an idea about the wide range of science experiments and instruments that these RAs oversee. There are magnetometers to study Earth's magnetic field, air samplers to see how the Earth's atmosphere is changing, ultraviolet detectors to monitor the ozone hole, all sky cameras to image the aurora overhead, and seismographs listening to the Earth below, to name just a few. Some experiments are repeated at multiple stations, while others are unique to their location. And there's so many at South Pole in particular that one RA just isn't quite enough. There's just enough experiments um, going on and enough uh, 
projects that if anything goes wrong, um, I bet one could probably handle it if everything went smooth all the time. <laughs> um, it, as soon as something goes haywire or something's not working right, you're kind of on the clock until it's fixed. And that, would, that, that makes it really nice to have two people. That's a big part of the job, repairing and fixing experiments that break. Um, everything is designed pretty robustly because they know it's A, it's for Antarctica, um, and B, we can't be experts in everything. I, I say we're looking after about 14 experiments here. So we rely on the PIs and their people, their technical people, to assist us if things do go wrong. And uh, as is the case with all electronic stuff, things definitely do go wrong. Every project has its own little area where they keep a bunch of stuff. They have a whole inventory of different parts. Some projects even have enough inventory of, of just items and instruments that they can almost completely rebuild whatever their instrument is. So in the case of like a nine-month winter or a six-month winter, you can just... If something breaks, then they tell you, hey, I think over here we used to have one of these. Can you like dig it out and take the old one out, swap it out, see if that was the problem? There's a lot of that. Uh, software glitches are quite common. Uh, it's impossible to put a brand new system in and expect it to work 100%. Always something goes wrong. Uh, and then we get, uh, we notify the PIs that, uh, look, this has happened. And then they look into it and they usually come up with a solution. Uh, sometimes they can do it uh, remotely. At other times, um, we have to do it here. The RAs keep close tabs on all the instruments to make sure that they're operating and collecting data correctly. Uh, it's really just a daily checklist I go through. Um, one of the instruments, I go and I sit in the room and I sit there for 10 minutes and I listen for different things and I look for different things. You know, did the, did the motor click that shifted the lenses around to a different setting? Uh, did the, the, the light blink that indicated the power supply is still good? Look at the graphs, make sure the graphs look normal um, and walk out to the antennas every week, every other week or so just to make sure, you know, they haven't fallen down or something hasn't happened to them. They haven't been buried in snow. Really day to day, it's just kind of make sure everything is ticking along. And just like there's a variety of different science experiments going on throughout the stations, there's a range of how much the RA has to do for each one on a regular basis. Um, so some of the projects, literally all I do is make sure they keep running. The data is automatically offloaded uh, back up there. Other projects, I read dials, write down data, and email it monthly or weekly to the to the PIs, and so it's all across the board. One of the more involved tasks is taking air samples at Palmer Station. Marissa needs to capture clean air, free of any contamination, into special sample flasks supplied by the researchers. So these flasks are carbon cycle flasks. Uh, I, sa I sample them once a week, um, weather permitting. Picture a like a soda bottle, like a two liter soda bottle that is made out of glass and it has two valves on it that stick out. That's to aid in the flushing of the flasks. Um, but you set these into a basically hard suitcase looking thing that has a pump and a couple gauges for pressure and flow rates. And you attach two of these flasks into the suitcase and you close it all up and carry it outside and sample and hope the wind doesn't change while you're out there. And keeping track of the wind is really important. If it blows contaminants emitted by the station into the sample, it could throw off the data. So I have to see which direction the wind's coming from. 
because Palmer is interesting because we don't have one, we don't have a clean air sector here. Um, so South Pole has a clean air sector, Summit has a clean air sector. We don't have a clean air sector here. So I just have to watch the wind and if it's coming from this quadrant over here, then I go to that out rock outcropping over there and sample. If it's coming from over there, I go, you know, underneath that antenna over there and out on that outcropping. I can go to the point if it's coming from over there. Um, so there's different, there's like four different places I can sample depending on the wind direction. The whole process takes a few minutes. And like so much else in Antarctica, winds can be somewhat unpredictable. Last week, I carried, carried it out over there, got it all set up. It was flushing and then the wind changed. And then I carried it all the way back in and the wind changed back. So I carried it all the way back out and the wind changed again. And I was like, okay, it's not going to happen today. <laughs> so I brought it back in, just left it. And then I think later in the afternoon, then it, it finally decided which direction it wanted to come from. And I was able to take the sample that day. You know, though it can take a bit of effort to capture a pristine, uncontaminated sample, researchers need that data to monitor global carbon dioxide levels and track the increase of the greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. I enjoy the air sampling just because I know so much becomes of it because it goes out and it's helping so many different scientists do the work that needs to be done. And it's just super cool that it's happening all over the world and I get to be the one who does it here. And it's really neat to be a part of something that big. And there are other ways that the RAs helped conduct science for the global good. Well, uh, one of the first things I have to do every day is uh, part of the CTBTO, that's the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty Organization. Uh, we have two systems down here. Uh, they're both out in the field. The sensors are actually out in the field. Uh, one array consists of uh, eight extremely sensitive microphones. It's called infrasound. Um, and what they're listening for is the characteristic sound that a nuclear explosion puts out. It's very characteristic. So if, if for example, uh, some nation was to come down to Antarctica and think that they could um, uh, let off a nuclear explosion uh, and not be detected, uh, the infrasound system would pick that up. So it's part of the CTBTO. The other array uh, is, um, now I think it's six or eight uh, extremely sensitive seismometers. And they are also tuned to look for the characteristic seismo signal that an underground explosion would put off, for example. There's a similar seismometer at Pole as well. And back at Palmer Station, there's another device, what's called a RASA instrument, essentially an air sampler, which is looking for any telltale radioactive isotopes that may have been produced in a nuclear explosion. So we, we're basically running air through that all the time. It's running onto a filter. The filter goes through a decay stage and then runs through um, a sensor, and it spits it out the other side. Um, and I package up those filters and mail them off. Uh, every quarter or so, and when the filter's running low, I replace the filter. The CTBTO instruments are located in the Terlab building, set back behind the rest of the station. In fact, many of the instruments at all the stations are housed in remote labs and structures. And Graham offered to take us up to the lab behind McMurdo Station, which is home to many of the experiments he oversees. Um, we're on our way up to the Arrival Heights lab um, in the Esme area, of course, out right on the top of the ridge. That's where most of the uh, upper atmosphere instrumentation is located. All the stuff that uh, looks up into the sky, um, various instruments that uh, look at aurora and ozone and uh, UV, all that kind of stuff. He points out some of the installations, equipment, and radio dishes on the way up. 
Uh, this installation on the left here is uh, B71 and there's uh, quite a lot of UNAVCO precision GPS instrumentation in there. It's also one of the things we keep checks on. And then uh, that array over there, all those poles, that is the Super Dawn array. Um, that's another thing we do, we drive past and make sure that everything's running there and then we can also log into that system and uh, do checks, uh, daily checks on uh, different parameters. Oh, there's Erebus. Gee, it looks nice. And then the lab on the left, the green one, is the New Zealand lab. And we're on the right, the little Arrival Heights lab. The lab is housed in a white building at the top of the hill. And walking in, we enter into the main operations room, whose far wall is filled, floor to ceiling, with readouts, indicators, and computer banks. So this is an ideal site for doing all that kind of experiments uh, where you don't want, you want minimum um, man-made interference, whether it be vibration or light or uh, RF or electromagnetic for that sense too. We're well away from all the electrical equipment that's running in the station. The site of the lab was carefully selected to keep the interference from the rest of the station to an absolute minimum. So the Arrival Heights lab uh, is located in the uh, Antarctic specially managed area, what's called an asthma. Um, and that's an area, it's about, I'd say it's about three quarters of a mile, maybe a mile away from the station itself, located up on the Arrival Heights ridge, uh, which is one of the specially protected areas in this part of the world. So uh, access to this whole area is controlled. Um, actually, it's one of my jobs to keep uh, track of everyone who comes into this area, uh, what they're doing here, how long they're in the area, and also what vehicle they're driving. Because depending on what the vehicle it is, it may in, uh, interfere with some of the experiments that we're running here. For example, we know that uh, vehicles put off uh, high-intensity sparks in the ignition, and some of the instruments can pick it up. Lights, radios, vibrations, nearly anything can interfere with the sensitive instruments, which is why it's so important to keep the lab isolated. First of all, the town itself, uh, particularly in the winter, generates a lot of light. So we are far enough up the ridge that we can't see the station at all. So there's no uh, chance of light from the station or vehicles running around at the station impacting uh, the equipment that we have up here. A lot of these photometers and uh, instruments that look up optical instruments are extremely sensitive because they're looking for very low light levels. So if you've got vehicle light shining into those cameras, for example, even if it's just a reflection of the domes that cover them, uh, it could seriously damage the sensors because they are so sensitive. So we're well away from any light from the station itself. Uh, that's for all the optical instrumentation and then things like the uh, equipment that does receiving. We are also uh, magnetically and radio shielded from, from the station itself. For example, uh, you can't pick up the uh, VHF station that we run at this. You can't hear it up here. It's too far down the hill and it's not high enough power. This kind of isolation is so important because the radio signals that some of these experiments are trying to detect are extremely faint. Marissa shows me one such experiment. It's one of the ones with versions installed at all three stations. So this guy, you can actually hear lightning. Um, I believe we can hear it as far as 10,000 miles away. And that is right here. Each pop is a faint radio signal from an individual lightning bolt hundreds or even thousands of miles away. 
But uh, it just so happens with a lightning a burst of lightning, uh, there's a broadband burst of radio frequencies that's generated. That signal travels all the way out into space and then back down, and we pick it up over here on these receivers. So it's like um, a natural sound, but it's telling us a lot about what's happening in the atmosphere. The experiment doesn't only pick up the signals of lightning. When charged particles interact with the Earth's magnetic field, they can create a wide range of otherworldly sounds. Palmer has beautiful whistlers. Absolutely, I've never heard a whistler down here. Uh, you hear a lot of that static, but you don't hear whistlers. With Palmer in the winter, you hear whistlers. Graham pulls up an audio file he made during his time at Palmer Station. This is a classic whistler in a VLF system. So I've never heard the whistle, but we get whale song at the South Pole. We get a phenomenal, it, it, it sounds just like a whale. Um, super bizarre, don't know what causes it. Uh, my counterpart likes to turn it up loud and put a tinfoil hat on. Um, <laughs> it's, gonna be, it's gonna be a good winner. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's really cool to hear that audio representation of that upper atmospheric electromagnetical noise. Between the lively co-workers, the cutting-edge science, and the stark environment, one can start to see the appeal of spending an Antarctic winter as a research associate. So it's definitely a really unique place to, to work. Um, you know, it's, it's unlike any other job I've ever had. <laughs> and I really like it. I like it because you never really know what's going to happen every day. Um, you could have an email from a PI, you could have an a instrument need help out on a daily check, um, and that's really, really nice. Um, it's, it's not really just like a monotonous, you know, show up to your cubicle and do the same thing every, every day. It's, and you never know whether it's going to be software or hardware or whatever uh, that you're working on, which is, which is awesome. That's all for this edition of the Antarctic Sun podcast, and stay tuned for more. I'll be bringing you more behind-the-scenes looks at how the National Science Foundation gets science done at the bottom of the world. And check out our website at antarcticsun.usap.gov for more news and science from the frozen continent. Thanks for listening.